First Peter chapter four. I do want to encourage you to stick around after our time of worship and preaching this morning. We're going to move after our closing song over to the sanctuary and uh, Brock is going to be baptized. And so we're going to talk a little bit while we're over there and we're excited to do that. You know, in your Bibles, you've got chapter headings, you've got chapter breaks, numbers, verses. When God inspired these things, for the men that he wrote the Bible through, inspired it through, we didn't have those. And so verse delineations, chapter headings, these are good, they're helpful, but sometimes they kind of break the train of thought. And I think that's sort of what happens here at the beginning of chapter 4. Because look at the beginning of chapter 4, we'll read it all in a second, but it says, since therefore. So obviously, chapter 4 is continuing Peter's train of thought from what he had to say in chapter 3. And in chapter 2, and he's been discussing the suffering of believers in relation to the suffering of Jesus Christ. Look at back at verse 14. He said, even if, of chapter 3, even if you suffer for righteousness sake, he says, you will be blessed. Suffering. Verse 16, he said, even when you're slandered, when you're persecuted, your good behavior, that's your weapon. Your good behavior is the thing that's going to silence those who slander you. And then in verse 18, Peter connected suffering of Christians with the suffering of Jesus. And he explains that Christ was put to death in the flesh, meaning that his physical body was killed on the cross. And I think he comes back to that idea in particular in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. All right, now let's Continue on and let's read verses 1 through 6 and ask God's blessing on our time. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Pray with me, please. Lord, this is, this is a really hopeful section of Scripture because it points back, it points our minds back to who we were before Christ. And it then challenges us to go and to not live in that way anymore. And, and Lord, we need to hear that. Because even the most devout, dedicated person in this room listening today, we still tend to forget these things. We tend to forget the gospel. We tend to forget your goodness, your, your patience with us. And so remind us of the right way and the wrong way to live. And motivate us to live properly for your glory, Lord. And in the difficult parts even of this text, I pray for your help and understanding for myself and for everyone here today. In your name we pray, amen.
So Peter, in the very first verse, he's, he starts talking about in the flesh. So he's talking about the body of Jesus. And he says that he suffered physically in the flesh. And I think that Peter's continued reference to the flesh of Jesus specifically is to remind us believers that Jesus experienced these things the way that we would have experienced them. So when he's dragged before the people with whips, before his crucifixion, he felt everyone in his back, just like you would. When they put the crown of thorns on his head, when they spit in his face, when they mocked him and made fun of him, he felt that, just like you and I would if that were to happen to us. His divine nature didn't spare him from feeling those things, and he endured it, as verse three, chapter 3, verse 18 says, to bring us back to God. Praise be to God for that. There seems to be something happening in this section, though, right at the beginning, maybe behind the scenes, that Peter's wanting us to understand, because in verse 1, he immediately adds, talking about the suffering of Jesus, he immediately adds, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. So there's a connection here between understanding suffering and having the mind of Christ. I think Peter's not alone in making this connection. Paul does it in Philippians chapter 2. Put a marker in your Bible at 1 Peter 4 and go back to Philippians chapter 2. Paul says very similar things in verses 1 through 8. And he ties having the mind of Christ to something in particular. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So there's that idea, the mind of Christ, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you notice how many times Paul there talked about the mind of Christ and how it's to be ours as his people? And then he talks about kind of what that mindset boils down to. He said it right there in verse 3, in humility. All of what it says about Jesus coming after that proves his humility. He didn't think what was in heaven was a thing to be grasped, but gave it all up to die a death on a cross for others. So several times here, Paul is saying, have the same mind, have one mind, have this mind, the mind of Christ. So we're talking about a mindset here. How do we view life? What do we look, what lens do we look through when we're evaluating, um, what's happening in the world today? What's going on in my marriage? 
how am I with my kids, what's going on at my job, how we view these things as a mindset. And Paul and Peter are saying, have the mind of Christ in those things. They say that this mindset is one of humility, of service, of sacrificial love. Paul says it that way in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, and Peter says it that way in Philippians, or in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. And they both emphasize Jesus' humanity here, which I think is kind of interesting. Paul says Jesus was born in the likeness of men, found in human form. He's emphasizing the same humanity that Peter is emphasizing at the beginning of chapter 4. Paul says Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. Peter says that Christians are to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. No longer for human passions, but for what? The will of God. So even though we live in the flesh... We aren't supposed to live according to the flesh, but instead we're supposed to live for the will of God. This is what Paul says, Jesus became obedient to the will of God that took him to the cross. And then Peter says something really interesting in verse 1 of 1 Peter 4. I think it's a really cool way to say it. He says, arm yourselves. So when you hear that phrase, arm yourselves, what else, what are you reminded of? What pops in your brain? What would you say? Battle, okay. Armor, okay. Anything else? Arm yourselves. Yeah, be prepared. What would you say, Brock? A weapon of some kind? Okay, so I've never done this. Anybody? Does anybody know how to fence? Okay, we've got one. So before you start, what do you say usually? Okay, which is French, right? On guard is French for on guard, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Can we speak French that easy? It's, it's a fencing term, though, and it means like get ready to battle, get ready to duel. And that's what we think of. And so I don't know about you, but when I read the first verse and Peter says, arm yourselves, I think of battle as well, some kind of battle happening, a duel. There's something going on here. And I think Peter is is going where Paul goes in Romans chapter 7. There's a battle happening that we need to be ready for. And the battle is contrasting living for human passions versus living for the will of God. Do you Do you see those two at battle in your life, Christian? Do you see that happening in yourself? There's a conflict here, and we need to be on guard. We need to take up arms, as Peter says. This is something that Paul goes into detail in Romans chapter 7, and we're not going to read all of that, but you can maybe reference that in your notes that you're taking to to read through Romans chapter 7. I just want to give you a couple of verses that I think you'll be able to identify with. If you know the Lord but you're still alive, you feel this. Romans 7, verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Do, do you feel that? Verse 22 and 23 of Romans 7. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see the members another law, but see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is saying, I, I, I delight in the law of the Lord, but I see this other law at work within me, my physical body, my mind, the way I think that is taking me away from what I really want. We can identify with that, and that's the conflict that Paul puts into words that really kind of rages within most every Christian. Now, it, it'd be nice in 1 Peter chapter 4, these first few verses, because that first verse ends, it says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It'd be nice to just kind of look at these verses and think that Peter is talking about Jesus. Well, Jesus suffered in the flesh, and so he's therefore ceased from sin. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. And I mostly think that because if someone has ceased from sin, what does that mean that they were doing before that? They they were already sinning. So certainly Jesus has never been engaged in any kind of sin. And so he can't cease from something he's never done. So I don't know that this is really referring to Jesus. I think it's referring to Christians. I think this goes back to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, maybe even back into Romans chapter 6. He says that there's a sense in which Christians have already died to sin. We are dead to sin. But there's another sense in which that old man, the sinful nature, is very much alive. And there's very much this battle that he talks about in Romans 7 that we feel. Even though it's kind of hard to put into words sometimes, if you've been a Christian for just a little while, you know this is true. In our time in 1 Peter, we've already used the phrase already, not yet kind of thing. Reminds me of like Ephesians chapter 2 where we're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies and yet... We're not there yet, like right now. We're not in the heavenlies. And yet in God's sight, we are. So there's this already not, not yet kind of dynamic going on. And I think it's here as well. Through justification in Christ alone, Christians have been made righteous in the sight of God. If you've been saved, you are made righteous in God's sight by his work. And yet, you may not feel very righteous When God looks at those he has redeemed, he sees the sinless Christ. But if you and I look at ourselves in a mirror, we see somebody who still needs a lot of work, right? I've heard about this kind of concept talked about in context of world history. So stay with me in this. Deacon, as a historical lover, you may know some of these details. Um, These are pretty well known. Think back to June 6th, 1944. Anybody know what day that was? D-Day, right? D-Day. The the Allies landed in Normandy that day, and it really marked the beginning of the end of World War II. And yet, June 6, 1944, one of the bloodiest battles hasn't even happened yet. The Battle of the Bulge. The end of the war was inevitable back in June of 1944, but the battles didn't officially stop until September of the next year. That was when the official stop date was. So, in the context of the Christian life, the day a sinner is saved by grace is like your D-Day. The beginning of the end is inevitable. 
The ending is written, so to speak. The outcome of your spiritual future is no longer in doubt. But you know what? Tomorrow might start the beginning of one of the battles of the bulges in your life. It may be an intense battle. Because the enemy, the world that we live in, our own sinful passions, as Peter puts it, these things are always triple-teaming us to lead us away from the truth, away from God's Word, away from God. And we feel that in the ebb and flow of our lives. If you're not intentional about being in God's Word, about spending time in prayer, about being with God's people, what happens? Two months later, you wake up and you realize, I haven't read my Bible. I haven't been to church. I haven't talked with my friends. And you feel dry. And you're in a battle. If you look back at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, he's assured Christians that Christ rules all. All authorities, he says, all angels, all powers. But those entities still want to give us one last battle, so to speak, like the battle of the bulge. So Christian, if you're going to win these kind of battles, what do you need to have? The mind of Christ. You've got to have the mind of Christ. He suffered and was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Chapter 3, verse 18 says, So sin never had a hold on Jesus, and through our new life in him, we have been set free from sin and the hold that it had upon our soul. We're no longer in bondage to that. So we shouldn't live the rest of our time in the flesh according to our sinful human passions, but instead we should live for the will of God, for God's will to be done in our lives. I was reading this week, a commentator named Edmund Hybert, he says, let's talk about that phrase, ceased from sin. Anyone who has suffered has ceased from sin. He says, this phrase depicts the spiritual state of the victorious sufferer. It carries a note of triumph he has effectively broken with a life dominated by sin. It doesn't mean that he no longer commits any acts of sin, but that his own old life, dominated by the power of sin, has been terminated. It's died. We're no longer bound. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect necessarily, but we're no longer held in captivity to that sin any longer. So if D-Day has taken place at your confer- conversion, the battle is ultimately won. The war is over. There's skirmishes to be had. You may still commit acts of sin, but your, your life is no longer dominated by its bondage and its effects. You've been set free. Peter says living for human passions is not what has to drive your life anymore. And he expands on this in verse 3. Look at that with me. He describes what living for human passions means for the Christians, especially in Rome. And he basically says, look, guys, we have spent enough of our time living in the past with the mindset of those who don't know Jesus. You've spent enough of your life that way. And then he gives them a list of things to help them understand what they should avoid, what they should stop, what they should not participate in anymore. Living in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. I'm under the mindset that all of these things really have to do with one basic thing, and it's idol worship. It's idolatry. 
If you look back, and you can even find this um, in non-biblical historical records, but there's a Greek god named Bacchus, and he was supposedly the god of wine and vegetation. And so I think it was about once a year in Rome, they would have this celebration. Uh, I think it's Bacchus. I'm not exactly sure if I'm saying that right. Uh, that term is still used today when talking about revelry and um, all the things that were in that list that, that Peter just included. And so w- when they would worship and celebrate this false god, all of those things were happening. All of those things were taking place. The goal of the festival was to abandon moral moral inhibitions through pretty well any means possible. Peter says in verse 4 that when Christians don't do those things anymore, their friends take notice, their neighbors see, their co-workers, people that they're close with. He says that they're surprised when these Christians no longer join them in their flood of debauchery. And then what happens? They malign them for it. Isn't this usually how it goes when a person is saved by grace through faith? Especially if it's maybe not until later in life. When God saves you out of a mindset and a lifestyle of living for yourself, which is in and of itself idolatry, right? When God saves you out of that, the ones who you used to do it with, they don't understand why you're giving it up. They don't get it. They don't have the mind of Christ to see the way that you now see. And so they don't understand. It surprises them, Peter says, and sometimes then they criticize you for not continuing to join them in now what they see is wrong. And I think what they know down deep is wrong. See, because what happens is when you stop doing that, when you withdraw your approval from those kind of things, what happens to their heart? Now they're convicted even more because you've said no. And they don't like that. And so then they begin to mock and they begin to make fun of, and as Peter puts it, malign Christians for it. They disparage you. They make fun of you. They don't understand what's going on exactly, but they know that they don't feel good about it, that you're the one wrecking it, and so they try to drag you down. Now, God can use this to witness to these kinds of friends. And there are stories in this room, maybe you were some of those people who made fun of other people who did the right thing. And God used people's examples, Christians suffering under that kind of persecution to bring you to faith. God can use that. He might even use your faithfulness in the midst of that ridicule to bring others to Christ, to bring the very ones who are mocking you to Jesus one day. Romans chapter 6, verse 21. Paul says something very similar here, almost sarcastically, as Paul can be sometimes. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Just think about that phrase. What fruit were you getting at that time? Those of you who especially maybe weren't saved until later in life and and had, you know, lived as the world would live up until that point, you've got some stories. You can look at this verse and you say, no good fruit. None. And Paul is is saying, what good came from all of that? Now you're ashamed of those things. The end of those things now you know is what? Is 
death. It's not, it's not fun. It's not joy. It's not forgetting. It's death. That's the reality of what people are caught up in in the world. And when we stop, when we break with that way of life, all of a sudden, they don't understand. And they can make fun of us, but God can even use those things to bring them back to him. So look at verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5. Peter has something else to say about the, these kinds of people. Not only are they surprised when you don't join with them anymore, he says in verse 5 that they are going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So they are the people here who willingly participate in this flood of debauchery. They are the ones who make fun of Christians for giving up that old way of life and taking on the life of Christ. Romans 13, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Listen to what he says. He says, but instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Isn't that what Peter's telling us to do? To not live for the passions of the flesh anymore? And Peter says, they're going to give an account. We're going to give an account to the judge of all. There's a judge waiting. And I think back to 1 Peter chapter 3, 15, verse 15. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And here's the interesting thing. See, sometimes non-Christians call us out to give an offense for the hope that we have, but one day God's going to call them out and they don't have an answer. Peter says, God as the judge, the end of verse 5, he is ready to judge the living and the dead. On the day when Christ returns, judgment day, judgment will be declared on all those who are still living and for all those who have died before his return. So Peter's big idea here is that there isn't a person who's living and there isn't a person who's already died who doesn't fall under the authority and rule of God. So living or dead, alive or dead, everyone faces God as the judge, which takes us to verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Now, this is another one of those tricky verses that we need to make sure we're understanding properly. Some take this verse and they point back to the tricky verses from a week or so ago and say, well, this just proves that Jesus preached to the dead in hell between his death and resurrection. He went to preach the gospel. Uh, as we kind of cleared up, I don't think that's what those verses in chapter 3 are saying and I don't think that's what Peter is saying here in chapter 4, verse 6 either. I actually think it's a lot simpler than that. So like we did last week, when we come to a text that's challenging and is a little unclear, let's take a step back and let's evaluate the bigger picture. Let's look at some of the context. So look back at just the first few verses of 1 Peter 4 with me. I'm going to summarize them. Verse 1, believers should be ready to suffer like Christ in this world and consider themselves dead to sin. Verse 2. Christians live for the will of God and not for the lusts of the flesh, the passions of the flesh. Verse 3. 
Christians used to live as the world does, pursuing all sorts of sin, but can't any longer. Verse 4, children's, Christians, sorry, Christians' lives have changed and their former friends are surprised at the transformation and might then engage in some slander against them. Verse 5, those who are unsaved, who are persecuting believers, will give an account to God who will judge everyone. That brings us to verse 6. Now, I just want to look at verse 6 line by line. I think that clears some questions up. The first phrase, for this is why the gospel was preached. So the good news of salvation in Christ has a, a certain specific objective here. For this is why the gospel was preached. Okay, this is what Peter's saying. Next phrase, even to those who are dead. So during their lifetime, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. We would say martyred for their faith in Christ, some of them. The, the Christian Standard Bible and even the NIV, I think, add the word now before dead. They're now dead to just kind of help make that clearer, which I think is helpful. So, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, so that's the next phrase, so these believers were judged in the flesh, and they died because of sin. Because all have sinned, all die. That's what Paul goes to length in Romans to to capture and to help explain. And so they were judged in the flesh and died because they've sinned. Judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. So because of the gospel, because of Jesus, even those saints who died prior to Christ's return will live forever according to the promises of God and the purpose of God. They live according to God in the spirit. So like we asked last week, what's, what's Peter's big picture here? What's his big idea? I think Peter still has in mind the suffering and victory of Christians in these verses. Peter is giving great hope, great encouragement to believers who are suffering for their faith. Because remember, that's why he brought up Noah and his family. Just, just eight people, a tiny group compared to all of creation who was just immersed in sin. They felt like a tiny group in Rome, maybe just the small number of believers and a great number of people with all of this bad stuff, debauchery going on. They felt a lot like maybe Noah and his family in the ark protected by God. Despite all of the attacks from the outside, the pounding rain, the waves, they were protected. And so Peter is saying that's how Christians are still who are suffering for their faith. They're following Christ's example of enduring suffering at the hands of sinners. He says that their enemies are going to be judged by God who's keeping track of injustice. Their friends who have died are right now experiencing eternal life in heaven. And they too will overcome death through the power of the gospel. So I want to just wrap it up with two application points real quick. Number one, If you consider yourself a Christian, you have to put off the things of the flesh and put on the things of Christ. You have to take off the passions of the flesh and take on the mind of Jesus. It has to be done. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
He says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So what's the primary way of being ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within you? Studying and knowing Scripture. What's the way in which we learn to have and operate in the mind of Christ? Studying and knowing Scripture. Because the Scriptures reveal Jesus. They reveal His mindset. You want to know how He approached temptation? Read the Bible. It's there. He understands that it's, it's by every word that comes from the mouth of God that he has sustained, fights temptation. R.C. Sproul uh, tells the story of, almost a humorous story, of one of his students in his class. I'm not sure exactly what class it was. Um, but this, this student practiced something she called lucky dipping. Doesn't have anything to do with tobacco. But apparently when she needed answers from God, she would take her Bible... And she would flop it open, and she would point to a verse, and she believed that whatever verse she, her finger landed on was what God wanted her to know in that given situation. Now, I'm not going to ask if anybody's tried that before, but that is not how you gain the mind of Christ. I can say that pretty definitively. Now, can God use that kind of method to teach you? Well, sure, because every verse you point to is inspired by God. So he can use that. It's all applicable for training and righteousness and and those sorts of things. God is able to use even the foolishness of man to accomplish his purposes. But is that the most reliable, trustworthy way to understand God's will for your life and to have the mind of Christ? No, it's not. That's not the method That's supported by Scripture. But what is the method supported by Scripture to have the mind of Christ? Psalm 119. Over and over. That's a long chapter. Over and over in that chapter, David speaks of knowing God's Word, of learning His righteous rules, seeking the Lord with his whole heart, storing up His Word in his heart, and meditating on His precepts and ways. Over and over, he says these things. That's how you have the mind of Christ. This is the way, not not lucky dipping, not arbitrarily picking out feel-good devotional scriptures. That's not the way. If we're to have the mind of Christ, there's no better way than to read, than to study, than to think, than to memorize and prioritize God's word in our life. That was a lot of blanks for your notes. Read, study, think, memorize, and prioritize God's word. That's how we have the mind of Christ, brothers and sisters. That's the first point of application. You have to put off the things of the flesh and put on the mind of Christ. Application two. Look back at verse five. First Peter chapter four, verse five. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You may not have noticed it, but it says the truth is that God as judge is ready. He's ready. In an instant, he could bring down judgment and justice on sin in the world and on you and me. And he would be totally justified in the condemnation of sinners. But this verse tells us that he hasn't yet come to judge completely. It hasn't happened. He's waiting. And it's because he's patient. He's full of love. He's patiently waiting. Think about it. He was 
patient with Adam and Eve in the garden, wasn't he? He didn't, he knew that they had sinned and he didn't instantly expel them from the garden. What did he say? Where are you? He was looking to establish relationship again. And even when they blew it and blamed one another and God himself, God still made provision for them by sacrificing an animal to cover them, didn't he? God was waiting patiently. He was patient with mankind's sin in the days of Noah. How many years, how many decades did Noah build the ark? Preaching the gospel as he did. Judgment was coming and yet God was patient. On and on down through history, we see Israel coming close to God and then moving far away from God. And coming close to God and then moving far, even further away from God. Over and over, God is patient and God is kind. And He's extending that to sinners. And it's still the case today. He's still being patient. If you have life and breath, God's being patient with you. Every person will give an account to the judge. And the gospel says that if you believe in Christ as your substitute then he was judged in your place. That's the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. When you believe that he's your substitute and took your place, you no longer face condemnation. You no longer face judgment and wrath. Jesus has endured it in your place. That's the gospel and that's the beauty of it. As he said in the previous chapter, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus in your place to bring you to God. Friends, if you're listening today, he's being patient with you. And his desire is to bring you to him through Jesus. That's the only way. My prayer and hope is that you would turn to this patient God and loving God and be saved today because we don't know how much longer we have. So turn to him and be saved. We're going to have a word of prayer as we close. The worship team will come and lead us in one more song. Brock and I will scoot out during that song to go get ready for the baptism. So as soon as the song is over, be dismissed and come to the other room. But let's pray and then we'll sing one more. Lord, I I need these reminders, these simple reminders of the gospel. As judge, you're waiting. You're ready to judge everyone, every person falls under your authority and rule, even those who don't believe it. Lord, we don't want our friends, our family, even people we maybe don't really like, we don't want them to be surprised in eternity when they stand at the throne and are told to depart. We don't want that. And so, Lord, not only do we need to be having the mind of Christ. We need to be going and and telling others how to do that as well. But it starts here. So Lord, give us your mindset as we approach all of life. Help us to no longer live for the things of this world, but to put on Christ and have his mindset that's within us. Lord, I would pray too that if there are any who are listening who've never put their faith in you genuinely, If they were to die, they would stand before you as a judge and be condemned because they have to bear under the weight of all of their sin and they can't do it. No one can. But Lord, the gospel says that if they believe 
and they repent and they turn by faith to Jesus as their substitute, they no longer face that condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's a truth that we grab hold of. And Lord, it's a truth that we only have because of your plan in Christ, fulfilled perfectly. Thank you for him. Move in your people today. Move in hearts. Help us to love you and your word more as we go. In your name we pray. Amen.